Good morning, everybody. Uh, as Maddie said, my name is Stephanie Combs. I, uh, I, I go to church here. Um, and occasionally I will step up here to uh, expound upon the word of the Lord when Megan and Larry are busy doing things like having babies or flying to Colorado for whatever. Um, they are actually at a church planters conference retreat. They go every year and Megan shared with me on Wednesday that it's really life-giving for them. So our, our blessings and our prayers are with them that it will continue to be life-giving for them this time around too. So when I'm not standing up here, when you don't see me on Sundays, I, uh, my, my day job is I'm a teacher. And I've shared that before, most of you know that. Um, I teach at an alternative school. <clears throat> and that carries with it, I know, a lot of different pictures in people's brains, right? Alternative school, that's where the bad kids go. It's not, actually. Um, it is just, we welcome students for whom traditional school is not working, and we flex, and we bend over backwards, and we twist ourselves into pretzels to find a way that we can make uh, education accessible for them. So that's what we do. So I have been at the same school for um, 17 years. This is the beginning of my 17th year. I've been teaching for 21. I started when I was nine, so... <clears throat> That's not funny. Come on, you guys. <laughs> That's just mean. I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, I've been at the same school for 17 years, and we really, it is, it is vastly different from what you would picture teaching to be. You know, you're imagining this, a classroom, a lecture, a, you know, whatever. And that is, it, it's so different from what we do. Um, and we've always, uh, we've always considered ourselves um, the outliers. Uh, nobody really knows what happens at Explorer Academy. Like, the, everybody's just kind of, what, what are, are you guys like homeschool? What are you? Like, every, nobody really knows. And so we really, we wear that, uh, that mantle with pride, actually, that we're, nobody, we're, we're odd. We're very odd. And so I, I teach high school. There are six of us in the high school. Um, we have a, it's a K-12 school. Um, the majority of our students are high school students. So there's six of us that teach high school. Um, so my three female colleagues and I got together before school started this year, and we decided we needed, we needed to let our students know who we really were and how it was going to help them. So we had a little craft project, and we made t-shirts. So note for the audio and the people in the back, my t-shirt says, weird teachers build character. Right? And I will have you know that I consulted my husband before church this morning and said, is it scandalous that I'm like popping open my, my jacket here and showing people my teeth? He was like, well, I mean, no. And then we talked about the best way to do it so I wouldn't really offend people. Anyway, I'm just showing off the t-shirt. Weird teachers build character. And you may be thinking, oh yeah, that's true. I had a weird teacher and they were a character and whatever. So why, why am I sharing this with you? Well, we have been working through the book of Luke uh, backwards, because as Dave read for us this morning from Acts, things went really well for the early church in the beginning, right? I mean, they, the spirit was moving, things were on fire, the church was growing, and we want to know how did the guys that started, the men and women really, who started, who God started with in the early church, how did they get there? How did they become those people that the Spirit could use so beautifully and powerfully? And so the way what we do is we look back. The, uh, 
Luke, who wrote Acts, also wrote Luke, oddly enough, right? Feels obvious. Um, but Luke is the story of how the disciples, the apostles, became the people that they were. And it was because they had a weird teacher. Everybody's like, that, that feels more scandalous. Did you just call Jesus weird? Jesus was an outlier, you guys. He was preaching and teaching in ways that were different, and he was teaching a message that was really different. So if we think of weird not as a negative thing, but as a, this is outside what has been standard, right? Then Jesus was a weird teacher, building character in the people that listened to him. And if you think I'm wrong, I'm going to point you towards today's text that we're reading from. So not only teaching a weird or outlier kind of message, but also teaching it in a way that even baffles me. So I'm going to read for our text, and I'm reading it from the ESV, which is not, it's a little bit harder to kind of get into, but that is the, the version that was given to, to you guys that grabbed our, um, our Gospel of Luke things that we handed out at the beginning that's got spots for notes and everything in it. So I wanted to read it in the same version that a lot of you have in this and that you've been reading along with us. So we're in chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 37 through 46 and then jump down to 52. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give as alms those things, so pay attention, to those things that are within, and behold, everything else is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves that people walk over without even knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, open our, our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to look into this very awkward exchange, this very different uh, lesson that you were teaching to the Pharisees and to your followers and open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to know how this relates to us and how we can learn from you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so this text took me on a little bit of a, of a deep dive, a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, and so I want, I want to warn you a little in advance, um, but uh, I, I promise you it will make sense in the end. I promise that it will. So what can we learn? Like, what is happening here? What on earth was Jesus hoping to accomplish by accepting a dinner invitation and then insulting his host? Spends the meal 
insulting his host and the friends of his host that are there, right? Um, so I did some, some research into, for, my first question was, okay, who were the Pharisees? Really? What was going on there? And so as I started to research that, it led me into this research about um, education in ancient Israel. Compelling, right? You're like, great, settle in. No, I promise you, it's, it, it, will, it will make sense. I will get back to this, but I feel like what I'm going to share with you this morning will not only shed light on this exchange in Luke, but I feel like it's really going to kind of open up a lot of the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, that you're going to go, oh, that makes, that makes so much more sense, or that I didn't even think about this aspect of it. So the Jews um, have in ancient Israel, really, really valued education, really valued education, which feels, uh, maybe you hadn't heard that before. You heard, you know, oh, they were all laborers, and very few people were educated, and only the rabbis, and, you know, whatever. But that's not true. uh, The Jewish people sent their kids to school starting at six years old. Sound familiar? Right? Kindergarten? So that every child, boys and girls, would go to the synagogue for school from the ages of 6 to 10, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and the school was called Bet Sefer, or the house of book is what it was called. So they would go to the synagogue, they would sit under the teaching of the rabbi in that synagogue, and, uh, it would, and they would just, they would hear the messages of the scriptures. The very first day, I, re- I read this account and I loved it, the very first day of Bet Sefer, the, the rabbi would hand out little slate tablets. Ta- don't imagine something that's perfect. I mean, it's like a piece of rock, basically. And he would come around with the, like such a great treat, not something they got every day, like this amazing, you know, it's how you like lure kids in with candy. He would do it with honey. And he would put a little drop of honey on their slate and then he would let them lick it, lick that honey. And as they're licking the honey off, he would say, may the words of the Lord be as sweet in your mouth as the honey on your slate. So he started it out with the words of the Lord are like this rich treat, right? And so uh, there's, there were sayings that as you walked past the synagogue, you could hear the chirping of the children because they would, the rabbis would instruct them in the Torah. And so In that four years, the children would hear and recite back the words of the Torah so much that by the time they finished, when they were 10 years old, they had the Torah memorized. If you're not familiar, the Torah are the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I was going to count up all the chapters and let you know, like this massive, I was, I can't count that high. I'm an English teacher. So the, the whole Torah, which if you think about that, ages six to 10, how much, I mean, our kids learn so much in those years, right? I mean, they go to kindergarten, they learn how to read and write. They learn numbers. That, so it doesn't really surprise me. I figure if you're hearing and reciting the Torah that much for those many years, like that feels I mean, really still impressive, but not like, no way, right? You could think, okay. So every practicing Jewish person knew the Torah. They knew the law. They knew it by heart. They learned it when they were children. They recited it throughout their lives. So they were well-versed in Jewish law. So at 10 years old, 
for, for most, most of those students, that was where the education ended. Certainly for the girls, that was where education ended. But for like the brightest and best of those kids would be invited into the next level of education. And it was called Bet Midrash. And it was for ages 10 to 14. And there were three, it was kind of three um, goals of Bet Midrash in those four years, because um, they had the Torah down, right? In those four years, they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So the prophets and the writings. Sean had the, the right response there. He did this first and then not like, yeah, the rest of the Bible. 10 to 14 years old. How many of you have ever been around a middle school boy? Right? I, I have one. And he's a delight, but yeah, he is different from his Jewish counterparts. Let's say that. Memorize the entire Bible at that point. The entire entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. I want, I just, I'm going to keep saying it. I want that to sink in. That's a lot of education, right? So that was the first goal, the memorization of the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. The next goal was to learn the art of rabbinic questioning. So the rabbis would teach through questions. So they would read a, a certain section of the Scriptures and then say, like, what does this mean to you? Or what, what was the Lord teaching through whatever? And their responses would be in the form of questions, right? And in that way, they would have these questioning exchanges. It would be like, when you're saying, Cindy, what is two plus two? And Cindy's saying, a better question is, what is 16 divided by four? Oh, see, we said they came to the same answer, but different questions, right? So learning that Jewish art of, of rabbinic questioning as a way of like expanding their brains. I hope this is fascinating to you. It was super fascinating to me, but just stick with me. I promise I'm gonna get back to the text. So the, the third goal of Bet Midrash was to learn the interpretation of the law. So you'd memorize the whole law. Now let's talk about how do we interpret this? Um, and it was a lot like as we stand up here and we talk about scriptures and we talk about, you know, here's you know, what the Lord gave me about this particular verse, or here's my interpretation, or, you know, whatever. It was a lot like that. The, how do we interpret these texts, the Torah? And every rabbi kind of had their own twist on things. It's a lot like, you know, you could hear this, this particular scripture taught by me and then hear it taught by somebody else. And we might not say totally opposite things, but we're going to bring different perspectives to it, right? So every rabbi had their own perspective and their own way of speaking about those laws. So I, I'm going to pause right here and I'm going to bring it back to the Pharisees, okay? So most of, I would say probably all of the Pharisees had likely made it all the way through Bet Midrash. They'd probably made it all the way to, to being 14 years old, got all of that education, knew the scriptures really well. Um, some of them may have gone on to the next step, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. Um, but, and there are some scholars who, who really talk about that the Pharisees like really tuned into that interpretation of the law part. Um, and they were very much about not just the, the law, the Torah, but about the oral law, which was 
Not the stuff that Moses wrote down or not the stuff that was written down in the Torah, but the things that were handed down orally throughout the years. And they were still oral traditions at that point. They had not been written down. At this point, they have been in the Talmud and in uh, the Mishnah are the two uh, books that go next to the Hebrew Scriptures for Jews today. And they are all about that interpretation of the law piece. I'm going to give you some examples. Um, in Exodus, in two places in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, there is a law that says, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's, there it is. That's just what it is. I, there it is. And the Talmud has then taken that, and that's the, you guys have heard of Jewish kosher laws, right? And they have, they, their interpretation, hey, just so we make sure we don't break this law about boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk, because that's probably one that you would break all the time. They just don't eat dairy and meat in the same meal. I want to make sure I don't break that law. We're just going to go ahead and separate those foods entirely. Uh, I read one scholar who said that the, the rule is you can't have dairy for six hours after you've eaten meat, just in case some boiling happens, I guess, down here. So it really, that's where those, those laws come into. It was, we want to be so careful that we don't break the law that we're just going to make it that much more strict. Um, there's an author and speaker, Margaret Feinberg, who's written this amazing book called Taste and See, where she talks and she goes in and she does all of this lived life in all these different places to research the foods that are mentioned in the Bible and God's relationship to food and how he uses it to teach us lessons. And in the chapter that she did about unleavened bread... She talked about these two rabbis that, you know, leaven in the Old Testament wasn't like your rapid rise yeast that you throw into stuff, right? It was the way that you make sourdough. You mix flour and water and then you let it sit. And the leavening happens on its own. Well, they knew that leaven will happen on its own. So these rabbis got together and talked about at what point does the bread start to rise so that when we're making unleavened bread, we got to make sure that we don't get to that point. And one rabbi said 18 minutes, and one rabbi said 24 minutes. So what happens is you go with the stricter one because you want to make sure you don't break that law. So if you're making unleavened bread for Passover, it's got to be start to finish, like out of the oven, done within 18 minutes. So that's what I'm talking When I'm talking about interpretation of the law, it's minute little details, things that maybe weren't necessarily even in the Torah, but we want to make sure we don't break it, because clearly God is very, very, very into rules. He gave us 613 of them. We got to make sure we keep them. So that's the Pharisaic mind, right? That's the stuff that got them up in the morning was, how am I going to keep this law? Well, I'm going to make sure I keep it, but even more so. So um, one uh, professor from Boston College, the late uh, Anthony Saldarini, said this about the Pharisees. He said, the Pharisees had a strong interest in tithing, ritual purity, and Sabbath observance, and not much of an interest in civil laws and temple worship. So they weren't really about the temple worship. They were about keeping that. Because really, I mean, if you kept all the rules, you didn't have to sacrifice, right? Because you kept all the rules. That's what God cares about. So, and isn't that exactly what we see in verse 42 of our text? I'm going to read it from the NLT because it, it, I think, rings a little, little more. Um, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. 
but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Right? So somewhere along the way, the Pharisees had exchanged the heart of God for a checklist, believing that what Yahweh really cares about is that I'm following the rules. But here's the thing. They were honored for it. Like People looked at Pharisees as like, ooh, you guys are super holy. They were, they were praised. The, the more accomplished their ritual checklist, the higher they were, they were praised, the higher they were elevated. So that brings me to the third step of Jewish education. So you got the best and the brightest who made it into Bet Midrash. And let's say you started in Bet Sefer with 15 students and six of them were girls, so then there are nine at the end that could be chosen for Bet Midrash and maybe four of them were chosen. So you got, you know, the best and the brightest through Bet Midrash. Well, at the end of that, if you thought you were worthy as a young man, you could move on to Bet Talmud, which is where you go to a rabbi, whichever rabbi you choose, and you say, I would like to be your Talmudin, which translates to disciple. I want to be your disciple. And so then the rabbi would go through this like intense grilling of this student, not only on their understanding of scripture, but the quality of their character and their level of commitment. Are you worthy to be my disciple? So they would come and say, Rabbi, can I be your disciple? And he would put them through these tests to figure out. And so of the four that made it through Bet Midrash, maybe you've got like three of them who go, I think I can do this. And so they go to a rabbi and the rabbi maybe picks one, right? So they really winnowed it down to the best and brightest. And so that disciple, or maybe those disciples, maybe two of them made it, um, would dedicate themselves to that rabbi. They would leave their homes. They would leave their, their father's trade, which most of the other kids then went back and applied the family trade, right? They would leave and they would follow this rabbi. And it was this high honor that you got to follow this rabbi. And they would walk so closely with this rabbi that it, it was different from a student-teacher relationship, right? A student wants to learn from the teacher. A disciple wants to become their rabbi. They want to, like, I want people to look at me and think I'm him. I've become so much like him. Um, so the, each rabbi had their own ways of following the law, of following the Torah, right? We kind of talked about that with kosher laws, kind of came up from that. But even more so, um, they, you know, there were different things. So an example uh, I, I read was, let's imagine, this is not one of the laws, I mean, in the movie Footloose it was, but let's imagine that the law says don't dance, right? That's the law. And Rabbi Moshe says, you've heard it said, don't dance. Well, I say, when you are walking down the road, if you stumble upon a rock, do not flail your arms to keep your balance, lest somebody 50 feet away thinks that you are dancing. And you go, oh, good point, Rabbi Moshe. All right, this is what we know. So the, the way that a rabbi would interpret the law and the checklist, the things that he would put on his disciples were called, uh, you might already know this, but for me it was like, <gasps> they were called that rabbi's yoke. Right? 
you always hear like, oh yeah, a yoke is what you put around an ox's neck. That is also true. But in ancient Israel, the yoke was the list of rules that the rabbi kept. And you knew a rabbi by his yoke. So you, you could go, oh, I see that young man. Oh, his nose is clearly broken. He must be Rabbi Moshe's disciple because he fell flat on his face and broke his nose. So obviously. Um, and, but that, so it was about, and you would go, oh. The, and the, the rabbis took great pride in the, the, the length of the checklist or the heaviness of the yoke, right? Because our yokes make us holy. What we do makes us righteous. If you see me and I'm keeping this super strict yoke, you go, wow, you are very holy. And that was the belief. Your yoke is what made you holy. Look at what, and, and, and come on, right? I mean, think about it. This is not far from who we are today. Look at all the things I'm doing or not doing. So, they, the disciples then would follow their rabbis so closely that it, it became, you know, wanting to just glean everything they could. There's an old Hebrew saying that they would say to the disciples, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is, may you be walking so closely behind your rabbi that as he kicks up dust from the ground, it's covering the front of your robes. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You're walking so closely behind him. So, let's come back to Rabbi Jesus. We know he was a rabbi, right? He was referred to as rabbi throughout the New Testament by Pharisees, by his own disciples, obviously. But, so, Jesus made it up. Nobody questioned that he was a rabbi. Nobody questioned it. And when he called his first disciples, think of this. He, the, the stories of Jesus walking by the lake and he sees two brothers, fishermen, and he says, drop your nets and follow me. And what did they do? Right? They, they did it, right? These are boys that didn't get chosen to be, maybe they didn't even go through Bet Midrash. And they're like, this rabbi wants to Yes! Yes! He chose them. It wasn't we presented ourselves to a rabbi and he found me worthy. It was he didn't even know me and he chose me. So Rabbi Jesus already did things different. He was already a little bit weird in that, right? And they dropped everything and they followed him. They followed him closely. They heard what he said. They watched how he lived. And so here in Luke 11, we're at a Pharisee's house. We're having dinner. And this was a big, this was a big deal, right? This, you, don't, you invite a rabbi into your house uh, because, well, in, again, in the Midrash, in a little section called the Perky Avat, which is a cute name, and it's not spelled at all like you think it is. Um, they, part of it says, may your house be a meeting place for the rabbi. Become covered in the dust of their feet, and with thirst, drink in their words. So the Pharisee invites the rabbi to his house. You would think for that reason, some of it too, I'm sure, was Jesus was a pretty well-known rabbi at that point, and it was, look at Jesus came to my house to eat. So there you go. So they're at dinner at the rabbi's house, and Jesus is insulting his host. So what is the lesson to be learned here? Jesus, you know, the Pharisees are upset. You don't wash your hands before dinner. Is the lesson to be learned here, don't wash your hands? No. I mean, I think if we've learned anything in the last three years, 
right? We've learned that we were all doing it wrong. Happy birthday, right? So washing your hands is important, but it is not the point, okay? So what is the point of this interaction? Because you know there was a point. Jesus didn't do stuff without a point, right? What is the message at the heart of this interaction? And that's just it. It's the heart. That's what Jesus is getting at. This wasn't just about Jesus teaching his disciples. It was about Jesus trying to save the Pharisees from the prison that they had created. This wasn't just Jesus being mean. This was Jesus going, open your eyes. You guys have let go of the important things. You've let go of the heart of the Father for the poor. You've made it so hard to come to the Father that you're actually blocking people's way to get there. Jesus is clearly saying this list of rituals, this checklist of rules, the number of obligations you keep mean nothing if you are neglecting the heart behind the whole thing. The temptation and the trap that so many fell into in ancient Israel is not much different from the temptation and the trap that we fall into in modern-day Port Orchard. This is what, what, we, what we think. Often, we fall into that trap of what we do makes us righteous. What we do, what people see us doing, even God. Look, look, Lord, my yoke is making me holy. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We preached in your name. When I was student teaching 21 years ago, um, there was a, a time, uh, w the program that I went through, you did your full student teaching, but before that you did these little mini, these micro student teaching things. And I spent six weeks in a fifth grade classroom at Hidden Creek Elementary. Um, and I can say this now because this teacher has retired long ago. Um, she was one of the meanest people I'd ever met. She, she, was, she would say awful things about her students and often to her students. And I just, my heart broke for these kids. And so I got to teach a lesson uh, when she left the room. Like one of the days that I got to teach, she was like going off to the staff lounge to have her coffee or whatever. And I remember, first of all, I remember when she left the room, the kids all kind of went, like, okay. And I remember teaching this lesson. It was about math, and we were doing this weird math, and all of the kids looked, like, this was their face. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea what you're mathing about. And I remember at one point, I, I did what I did. Like, I noticed, like, all of these faces are not. And I, so I switched. I was like, okay, let's pretend that the four lives in this kingdom. And the three lives. So I just totally turned it into, like, an English lesson, right? We're doing literature, whatever. And I watched, like, as I, like, and then this happened. And I watched, like, ding, 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 ding. Like, little light bulbs get, like, Oh, that moment when they got it. Like, and I, I, mean, I was like, oh, look at me. They got it. They totally got it. And, and I think, obviously, the disciples have been following Jesus for a long time, and they learned a lot from him. But I think this dinner may have been a ding moment for them. I think this might have been the beginning of, like, an aha moment for the disciples. Um, they had been following Jesus. They had seen him live this life of ser service, not to rituals, but to people. And so, I, but I really think this awkward dinner, before, you know, they maybe got over the cringe of like, and then went, 
oh, oh, and then started thinking about it. Because at some point, that eye-opener, those, those boys who were following Jesus, turned into those men that Dave read to us about in Acts chapter 2. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I really think this awkward dinner was the beginning of the disciples going, oh, oh, that's not what it's about. It's not about washing my hands all the time. So, and then, uh, as we're prone to do, I mean, the church in Acts was on fire, right, and growing and amazing, and the more people that came in, the yoke started getting heavier. They started collecting, picking up rocks. You know, we're in a gym, you know, putting weights on the bar that they were carrying around. And the church decided they wanted to be able to make distinctions about who was in and who was out based on what they did. And Peter, a disciple of Jesus, still covered in the dust of his rabbi, says this in Acts chapter 15. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe God, <clears throat> excuse me, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen? It's not about the yoke, friends. Somewhere along the road, as the dust of their rabbi began to cling and stick to them, the disciples learned that the checklist was not the point. The yoke does not make you righteous. So what? Who cares? What does this mean for me? What does this have to do with me? What does this mean for us today? I think it's obvious, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because that's what I do. Have we made it harder for ourselves or someone else to follow Jesus? If we're honest with ourselves, have we taken our eyes off of Jesus and reduced discipleship where you follow your rabbi so closely that you're covered in his dust? Have we reduced discipleship down to a to-do list? Quiet time, check. Bible study, check. Church attendance, check. Tithing, check. All of those things are, are good things. They're very good things when they are done out of the overflow of a heart that loves Jesus and loves your neighbor, and loves justice, and loves mercy, and loves the poor, and the disenfranchised, and the person who looks different than me, and the person who believes different than me, and the person who votes different than me.
When the checklist becomes the point, it becomes pride, and the heaviness will crush us. We will be unable to bear it. Our kids are going to be joining us in just a minute, and, and we'll be turning our hearts towards communion and this moment where we can just let it all go, where we can empty our hands of the weights that we've collected. Clear them off the bar. I want to remind you of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he called all of us, not just his disciples, to himself. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to encourage you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think about your yoke. Think about the things that you've told yourself, I have to do. Are there things, things that you think God expects of you? If you're comfortable, I want you to open your hands and, re and release it. You can open your hands palms up or you can turn them palms down, like you're dropping the things that you've collected. And with your eyes closed and your hands open, I'm going to read those words of Jesus again, but from the message paraphrase. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live lightly and freely. Oh, Jesus, that is our prayer. That you would empty our hands of all these stones that we've gathered. We can't receive when our hands are full of the things we've collected that look like righteousness but are really just a checklist. Holy Spirit, give us discernment between the things that are life-giving and are showing people the love of God and the mercy of Jesus and the things that we've just collected that make us feel more righteous. Give us discernment to know which things we let go of and which things you say, no, that's mine, keep that one. Don't ever let us lose sight of the fact that it is your grace and it is your mercy that saves us. The love that you have for us can never be earned. Can never, we can never do enough. We can never check off enough boxes to say, yes, this is, yep, now you've done it. You've earned my love. Well done. Father, May the things that we have be only things that give you glory and only be things that we do out of the overflow of love for you and show love to our neighbors. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production.
We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you and God bless.